Hello and welcome to another episode of New Work in Intellectual History. My name is Monika Wilczynska and I am an Intellectual Ma History Master's student at the University of St Andrews in Scotland. Today I have the great pleasure to talk with Alessio Asenitis. Alessio holds a PhD from Columbia University and his research interests include Renaissance art history, book history, Medici history, digital humanities and archival studies. So following his doctorate, he has been part of the Medici Archive Project and has held the position of director since 2009. Alessio has also established an academic book series in association with the Medici Project. So today we will discuss his career from scholar to director, his research interests and what it means to be a scholar today. Hello, Alessio. Hello, Monica. Hello. Hello. So uh, let's uh, go straight into it and I'd like to discuss um, by taking a look back at your academic work as a scholar. So perhaps let's begin with your PhD thesis and uh, could you tell us if this was the foundation for your academic interests or this was something different? How did it all go for you? Um, I, I will take a step back. Um, mm -hmm. um, I was a classics major. Um, when I, when I, I grew up in Rome, I lived in Rome, um, and uh, I went to college in America and I, I, you know, I studied Latin and Greek a lot, but I always knew that, you know, Latin and Greek, you know, <clears> at least, you know, at least I thought was a preparation for what I was going to do later, which is art history. Um, and so I did, you know, spend, I, I studied nine years of Greek uh, and about 12 of Latin. Um, the Greek I forgot completely, you know. So between high school and college, um, I, in university, I, I really didn't do any art history whatsoever. In fact, I didn't do any history whatsoever. I just, you know, I just basically read, again, Greek and Latin. Um, but I always knew that I did not want to become a classicist. I, that was in my, you know, career path. I, I always wanted to be an art historian. Um, in fact, it's strange because my career, and I'll anticipate this, you know, moved from classicist to art historian to historian. So it was a, sort of a genesis, a, a metamorphosis, <coughs> if you want to quote Ovid. Um, so, um, um, so I, I always, I always wanted to do that. I always thought that was good preparation for my, for my career as an art historian. So um, when I entered graduate school, um, and I went to graduate school at Columbia in New York as an artist in the art history department. I, you know, I really, you know, I, I never took a, you know, a class in, 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 in our history. I did do a couple of digs as an archaeologist and I figured that I didn't want to spend my life, you know, under the sun or under the rain, you know, and, 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 right. and, 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 and in a sense, start a pro and sometimes start a project in archaeology that, you know, would really last 10, 10 15 years. I, I wasn't, I didn't see the, and suddenly I didn't see the point of that. I thought it was just, you know, too much, too much in the long run. I didn't, I wasn't, I, I wanted something much more immediate in many ways. Um, and so I, I entered, you know, the art history department and, you know, and at the beginning, I, you know, I, I really wanted to, I really always was interested in, in one figure, um, one historical figure, which was Fra Girolamo Savonarola. That was always something that I, that I admire, admired, you know, um, um, I, I was, I was puzzled by, you know, the sort of the, 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 the amount of, 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 of treatises and, 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 and preaching and, and, and the amount of sort of paper, you know, the amount of, the amount of sort of, you know, pages of, 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 of discussions, of preaching, of treatises that he produced, you know, especially during the period from 1490 to 1498 when he died. And the great artistic movement, which, you know, which we today call the Renaissance. And the fact that these two things were never addressed 
concomitantly. They ne I never thought that, you know, they were, or at least they were never addressed in the proper way. So what I did was really begin sort of reading Savonarola's writings um, and see um, if there was, because he never left a treatise on art, and try to extrapolate, you know, whether in terms of his preaching and whether in terms of his theory, that in terms of his treatises, you know, the um, what he what was his ideal aesthetics in many ways, and that was the beginning, you know, that was the how I how I approached graduate school. So I spent the first, you know, you know, six or seven years of my career working on Savonarola, and you know, and to see the impact that it had on artists, and whether it was a, an emotional impact, because as you all well know, he was burned at the stake, and he was. Sort of a, a fiery sort of preacher, and also his aesthetics, which were very different from from um, from you know what you know artists how artists felt after listening to him. So there were two separate things, and I'm and um, I worked on you know Botticelli, I worked on on Fra Bartolomeo, um, I worked on you know also Michelangelo. So that was sort of you know the, the understanding the degree to which he was able to sort of you know his his his. His preaching was able to have an impact again on on art and artists. <clears throat> so that was the first part of my career, and you know, and um, you know, and, and I taught you know a couple of years at Columbia, and I taught a year at Barnard, which is a women's school, a women's college at Columbia, and then um, and then uh, after my PhD, I you know I you know I thought I, I you know I thought I would like every graduate student you know who write, writes a PhD, you always think you are the greatest thing in the world, right? <laughs> um, and um, so I was, I didn't really know at the time, I, I, I finished everything in 2002, 2003. I, the one thing that Columbia sort of didn't teach me is what do you do next? You know, basically, you know, I knew I had to apply for jobs. I knew, you know, I basically went through the whole process of finding a teaching job and, you know, and I applied and, you know, and, and at a certain point, you know, I, I got, you know, several adjunct jobs in the beginning. I, I taught in Indiana for a year. Um, and then also I tried also working in, in a museum. I worked in the Indianapolis Museum of Art. I was basically trying out every possibility that every single index of possibilities that a degree, a PhD in art history could provide. Um, but I was never really happy in many ways. I didn't like teaching that much or better. I didn't like this, this system of universities that much. And I definitely didn't like working in a museum because sometimes museums can be extremely limited in the amount of research time that you get. And all I wanted to do was to research. And the really, the only really thing that I always liked, I realized since the very beginning was working with primary sources and especially with archives. So archives has always been, you know, the thing that I wanted to do. And unfortunately, um, working with archives, especially, you know, especially if you don't live in Italy, where something like 65% of, of early modern archives in the world are, are, are housed, um, I thought to myself, well, you know, I, I got to figure something out. <laughs> I, you know, I really want to do research, but at the same time, I do not want to spend, you know, six months in America and six months or nine months in America and three months in, 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 in Italy, in Rome or Florence for the rest of my life. So um, I, you know, I was... I was sort of stuck in many ways, and and all of a sudden, a, a colleague at the, at the at the museum in Indianapolis said, "Well, listen, there's this fellowship, you know, in Florence of a sort of a, of a an up and coming startup um, research institute, which, which wasn't really a research institute at the time, it was sort of more like a foundation, and the National Endowment of the Humanities, um, you know, which is a governmental sort of um, institution that you know that provides funding for scholarship for research." Um, said, you know, you know, they are, they are, they have a fellowship, for, you know, to, to work in the archive in Florence, and you know, it's a three-year fellowship. You know, it's a, you know, it's a way, way to, you know, to, to go back to Italy because I, you know, I basically moved from, from it from Rome to 
to the States and back again to Italy. And I thought to myself, well, you know, let's try it. You know, I mean, for three years, you know, worst comes worse, I'll just, you know, do a lot of research and, you know, and then eventually I'll go, I'll go back in the, in the teaching, in the teaching arena, you know, and, and, you know, and so I did that, you know, I was a fellow, a fellow at the Institute that I now direct for three years. And, um, you know, and I basically was working in the archive, in the state archive of Florence every day. And I had to sort of recalibrate a bit, you know, my, my trajectory because, I really worked on, you know, the time I was working on Savonarola, specifically in, you know, with artists and his, his, um, the artists and, and in the convent that, you know, that his followers founded in Rome. So it was much more of a Romanist than a Florentine scholar, although I had been working in the Florentine archives for quite some time. And also, you know, the, the, the fellowship, you know, really dealt with one collection, one archival collection, which is the collection of the Medici Grand Dukes. Which you know, the Medici Grand Dukes, Dukes and Grand Dukes, you know, they they basically are they begin in 1532, 1537, all the way to 1740, 1743. So it was really you know 20, 30 years later, after, 20 years after my expertise, and you know, and and you know, many people think that 30 years in 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 early modern history is nothing. That you know, it means that it wasn't. It was a different world altogether. I was working in the 1490s, and all of a sudden, I am, you know, I'm propelled. I'm now working in the in the 1550s, 60s, and 70s, and you know, so I had to do a lot of work. I had to brush up, you know. I mean, you know, especially when you get into archival, when you get into an archive, you have to really. There's so many different people and facts and and events, you know, that are very different, you know, from what you were used to, you know. If if I, as I said, I was working in the 49th. so I began working on, you know, with the Medici project as a fellow. And, you know, and at the time I was sort of, you know, trying to keep the Savonarola part alive and also, you know, sort of, you know, jump into this, this new world, which is 16th century, mid 16th century Florence. And, you know, but I did like working in archives and, you know, and the idea of working with primary sources for me was paramount. I remember when I was in graduate school, my professors, I studied with someone called James Beck and David Rosand and, and in part David Freeberg, you know, they sort of told me like, you know, especially the first two said, well, you know, you know, you, you don't want to spend the rest of your life in, life in an archive because you really, you know, you're really going to spend too much time, you know, in, in the thick of things and you will never be able to get out. That is, you'll never right. be able to sort of, you know, to, to, to finish, to complete something because the amount of information, the tsunami of information that you have uh, available will distract you from, you know, the completion of a dissertation, which wasn't true. You know, I, I, you know, as many graduate students, I really wanted to get it out of the way. You know, so I, you know, at a certain point, I said, okay, I had it, I've, I've gathered enough information uh, with someone at all on his followers and the artists around the his entourage that I think I can sort of, you know, finish it. And I actually wrote my dissertation, physically wrote it in four months. I basically, you know, the great thing about Columbia. That's so great to hear. I know the great thing about Colombia was it's possible, yeah, because I really, it, it really was something. It was like. You know, it was, it was, I didn't, it was like giving birth, you know, at a certain point it's painful. I don't know anything about it, obviously, but I mean, it was, it was, it was in a sense, it was, you know, I wanted to get rid of it, you know, and, you know, I just, and the good thing about Colombia is that the libraries, you know, were, you know, they stayed open until midnight, you know, so I could basically, you know, in, in, in some cases, the, the big history library, which was called Butler, was open all night, you know, so I was, ba I basically lived in a library for four months and I was just writing and writing. I was, I was sort of, I almost had this sort of, you know, was caught with this, fire if you want right. to use a, a, you know a, an analogy with Savonarola who was burned at the stake um, I was I had this fire in me and, and it just really got it out of the way very quickly 
And wow. um, I also understood something that I was writing a dissertation. I was, was not writing a book. Um, so it didn't have to be absolutely perfect, meaning that, you know, there are certain things that, you know, and, and it also has all the kind of all the naivete of a dissertation. You know, you want to include everything. You want to mention everything. You want to show how smart you are and how good you are. And, and, and that was something that, you know, I, I rereading it now after many, many years, I, I see that kind of naivete of sort of trying to impress my my um, my um, my readers and uh, and my advisors. So um, I got out of the way, right? And that was, you know, and that was, you know, that was perhaps the greatest moment of my scholarly life because I really was, you know, I really had nothing else to think about except for writing. And, you know, and I, you know, I always liked writing. I mean, even before I did classics, I wanted to be a writer, you know. So I, I, I went to a, a college in, in, uh, in, uh, in New York, in America, sorry, not in New York, in Vermont, that, you know, that was, you know, and, and, I, and I was hoping to be a writer. So I did, I took a lot of creative, creative writing courses. And I realized immediately that I was not a writer. I didn't have the, that in me. But I, I did like sort of, you know, to reconstruct, to deconstruct and reconstruct, you know, historical facts. And the archive allowed you to do that. The archive allowed you to look at micro history in, with such detail. And then, you know, and then it allows you, if you are, in a sense, good, to, to, to apply it to a much more macro historical context. And that would, that's something that I always, and I still enjoy today. I mean, I still love doing that today, even though as a director, I, my job is unfortunately not, it's less scholarly right. and institutional and more, and more um, administrative. So that was it. So I, I really was, you know, and, and I, and I studied, you know, the documents very well and I understood them and I, and, 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 and in a sense, you know, I mean, I, I'm thinking um, there's a famous, the, the Medici archive, the, the, the archive of the Medici Grand Dukes comprises something like 6 million letters, you know, so it's a vast, vast archive, you know, so it's, it, it's also the archive of a family that merges into a state. So it's, there's a lot of personal stuff, there's a lot of administrative stuff, but especially there's a lot of foreign diplomacy. So, um, you know, in, and it's, 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 it has, it has, you know, it, 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 it came to us almost intact. Um, so it's, we really have a complete set of data, you know, of, of, you know, coming from all over the world and coming from within Florence and also coming from the Medici themselves. So, and, um, and when I, when I was, you know, basically when I was working on this, on this collection, because what we did as, as at the Medici after project in the beginning was to transcribe documents on a database. And I'll get back, I'll get to that in a second. Um, what we did, um, you know, was really looking at, you know, deeply, you know, the lives of people. I mean, it was very voyeuristic, you know. You know, and I love that. I love reading letters of other people, especially from you know people from you know who lived 500 years ago. And basically, you know, um, I, when I after a couple of years of just you know analyzing this material, I, I was reminded by a famous quote by James Joyce. James Joyce said, you know, you know that if, if Dublin would be destroyed, you know, by you know a nuclear bomb, you can reconstruct Dublin just by reading Ulysses. You know, which is obviously a very arrogant thing to say, but it's, I understand what he's saying. So when I was by, by looking at the, the Medici letters, you know, I thought to myself, well, you can reconstruct the early modern period, you know, from reading these letters, because, it, because the majority of this archive is our letters from diplomats from all over the world, you know, writing back to Florence. So in a sense, you know, I know I, in many ways, one should look at this archive to, you know, to know about, more about you know, England or France, or you know, or the, you know, the the Ottoman Empire, the New World. So it was it, for me. It was it was sort of a very kaleidoscopic sort of world opening up in front of my eyes, which changed also the trajectory of my research because I was working in you know on Florence specifically, Florence specifically, Savonarola, which was a very 
very small, very inner circle world. And all of a sudden I am sort of, you know, I'm dealing with, you know, news from all over the world and from all different kinds of places. And, you know, and, and, and I had to come to terms with this, with this great change, which was, which was not just historical or chronological, but it was also methodological. You know, I mean, what, what do you do when you have all this information? What does it mean to the Medici who had no colonial ambition whatsoever to have this, this, this again, this tsunami of information from all over the world? And, you know, that for me was, a, was sort of a, sort of a, not a shock, but it was, you know, it was hard to deal with it in the beginning. And, 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 but that, that changed my, that changed my, my career. And, and something that I, you know, that, that, that I suggest everyone should at least think about is to allow research to change the career. Research should change, you know, trajectory of your career. Research should, archives should change the way you look at things. And sometimes, you know, I mean, I, I look at my proposal, from a dissertation and it's very different from what I actually right. ended up doing. And I look at sort of, you know, the ideas that I had about the Medici before, you know, working, you know, in at the Ministry of Health Project as a scholar, and it completely changed my view. I mean, you know, and that allowed me to, to, to think, you know, in a different way and to, and to, again, to change the trajectory of my research, of my publications, of my talks and everything else. Right. Wow, you've opened up so many questions. This was absolutely fascinating and I love how even early on, you were very forward thinking. When you were studying Latin and Greek, you were already preparing yourself for what's to come next. Um, so maybe you could tell us a little bit more about this uh, Medici Archive project. What kind of work you undertake right now? Because you said it was still a transition of what you undertook on this uh, fellowship, what you do now as a director. And is there anything that surprised you about this work? I think there are many things, but I'm, I'm very curious from reading these archives, is there anything that stood out to you that you stood back and thought, wow, this is something I didn't expect to see here? Well, I mean, I wasn't planning. I, I, I did not, you know, I did not, before I even start, you know, I, I come from, as I mentioned to you before, from the film business. My father's a film producer and, you know, all my family works in film and, you know, and Obviously, I wanted to get out of that world you know, in any way whatsoever. I mean, I thought, you know, I'm, I'm not into that. I don't like that, you know. And, but basically, what I'm doing today as a director is exactly what my father does as a film producer. You know, right. it is, you know, I mean, I do find money for my for the scholars. I do write grants. I write a lot of grants each year. I do, unfortunately, a lot of fundraising, whether it's in it's in uh, in America or in England or in China now. So well, less now for obvious reasons. But I mean, I before before 2020, I was I used to go to China a lot. Um, so um, it it what I what would the transition from scholar to director um, it was important because it made me understand what the infrastructure of the academia is and how the there's there are a lot of lacunae in the infrastructure of academia. Um, we think of academia usually as you know universities or institutes, but it it can be it can be something which is you know which can be open to a, a wider a wider audience and a wider pool of funding. So when I was a scholar, you know, and I was a scholar at the Medici Project until basically 2007 2008, you know, there was a transition among directors, and at the time, you know, um, you know, uh, one director left, a founder left, and a new director came, and another director came. So nothing really worked out. Um, also, because a lot of these people, except for the founder himself, a lot of these people who came to direct the Medici Project were not really scholars. You know, um, there were more people who were who came from sort of the, the institutional sort of um, part of the academic world. Um, and I was a scholar, so I, you know, I knew what scholars wanted. I knew what, you know, what, what, what I had a feeling of where, 
you know, the research trajectories were, were disseminating. And so I came from a very different kind of position. I came from, I basically graduated, you know, from a foot soldier all the way to a general, you know, you know, and that, that, that allowed me to understand what, you know, what, you know, what research was all about and how to, in a sense, to put, you know, the research, the archives, you know, and, you know, and the possible funding and the possible sources of funding together. I saw that coming because one thing, when you work with archives, archives are not glamorous. I mean, I don't, I don't have a collection of paintings like Uffizi. I don't have the National Gallery to show. I don't have even the spaces of the archives are not as glamorous as, for instance, you know, you know, a museum or, or you know, a, a research institute, you know, you know, you know, that has, that is well established, you know, that, or or anything, or even a university. So it's, you know, I had to basically sell something number one, which was, you know, which was not beautiful in terms of aesthetics, it's just paper, and also which doesn't belong to me because the the, the state archive of Florence, you know, belongs to to, to to the Italian government. We only we are the curators of the content, but we're not the owners of the content. So that was very hard. I mean, but at the same time, you know, what what people liked, you know, I noticed, you know, and I've given you know a lot of talks, you know, whether scholarly, academic, but also much more generalist talks. What people liked was the idea of, of the primary source, that is, you know, the idea of being able to enter a world, you know, that usually a painting or a book or, you know, a, or, you know, a scholarly a work of scholarly literature, you know, or doesn't allow you to get in. That is to get into the really the micro history and, and, and understand, I think that one of the things that, you know, a lot of people liked, you know, people who didn't work with archives, who didn't know the Medici, who have no idea of what an archive is, was how similar we are you know, how, you know, how very close we are to the Medici themselves, you know, which of course was an elitist family, but also the people around them, you know, um, and what they liked was the idea that, you know, that, that, that the, the preoccupations that they had are the ones that we have today, you know, so, I mean, for instance, the, the Medici archive talks a lot about health, they talk a lot about plagues, you know, they talk a lot about legacy, you know, these are the things pretty much that were very close to them, and, and in a sense, are very close to us today, so, I was, the idea was to, you know, to come together, to bring these two things together. As a director, I, you know, I don't have an MBA. I mean, you know, I wish I did, you know, so I had to basically begin to tackle it. And I became director overnight, practically. You know, they, they couldn't really find, you know, which is also very similar to, to, to the life of Cosimo I. Cosimo I was the Duke of Florence. He was Duke of Florence in 1537. But he was never, he was not a part of the Medici main branch. He was a minor branch. He was never in the line of succession. So when the Duke before him, you know, Alessandro died, there were no Medici left. So they had to pick this guy, you know, this Cosimo, this kid who was not part of the main branch. And he became Duke overnight, you know, and he was 17. So basically I am, I, you know, and also Cosimo became the subject of a lot of my, of my studies and my articles and books. And, you know, I, I identified with the idea that, you know, all of a sudden I didn't know what to do. I don't know where to start, you know? So the first thing was, you know, you know basically, look at the you know the the administration of my of my of my um of my institution you know and also at the time when i became director all that the medici archive project had was a database that's all we had we didn't have any publications no series no com we didn't do any conferences we didn't do any, we didn't do any exhibitions you know so we had this corpus of, of data you know which by the way was also not available online i mean it was available online but only insofar as you know, scholars who came here were transcribing it and putting it online, you know. So the first thing I did, you know, as, you know, as a director was I said to myself, well, okay, you know, 
um, rather than looking for funding, you know, to get, you know, postdoctoral students from all over the world to come to Florence and transcribe documents, right? You know, which is very expensive, you know, I mean, it's very, very expensive. You know, and it was, and it also, it was also around 2008, 2009 during the crisis, so the first, you know, the, the financial crisis of 2008, 2009. So then I said, okay, you know, why don't we do the opposite? Rather than having scholars come here, why don't we, you know, you know strike a deal with the Archivio di Stato, with the with the Ministry of Cultural, um, of, of of culture in Italy, and have them, you know, allow us to digitize this material, right, so that scholars can transcribe them anywhere in the world. But in order to do this, I had to come up with a platform. You know, so the first, very first thing I did was to go to the Mellon Foundation and said, listen, there's so much information about, and it's not just about the Medici, it's about the world in general, right? But we need to find a way, you know, I need to think of a way to come up with, uh, with a digital platform that allows people, scholars, you know, to access this material anywhere in the world. And, um, and, um, and at the same time, do the transcription and, and contextualization um, process from anywhere, the, anywhere in the anywhere in the world can that doesn't have to be you know Australia. It can also be Rome, you know. Be, you know so it's hard for someone to come from Rome to Florence to do this kind of stuff, and it's expensive, let alone you know the United States or, or or anywhere else in Europe. So I thought, okay, you know, let's do this. So I went to the Mellon Foundation in New York, and I and it came up with an idea, you know, you know that I thought was you know that I thought would would, would solve the problem. And, you know, because I always think that digital humanities should solve an issue. You should have something that allows you to do something else. You know, you know, the problem was, you know, I couldn't get scholars to come or at least the many scholars that I wanted to come to Florence because it was too expensive. So what I did was, you know, rather than them coming to Florence, I brought the documents to the world. So that was the first step. And that was the first database that we did. It took two and a half years to produce. And it's called BIA, B-I-A, which is also the, the one of the daughters of Cosimo I. Um, and that was the first step as, as a director. That is, you know, I, I, I and, and sometimes I get called all the time to get papers of digital humanities, but I'm not really a digital humanist in that sense. I just figured that there was a problem and I needed to be solved. And I solved it, you know, with a digital platform. So that was the beginning. Once all these documents were online, all the transcriptions, and bear in mind there are six million documents, so you know it's you know it's very hard to add. We I think we have almost a million now online. So you know, and I, I, I once I did this, once this material was available to scholars, then the second step was you know you know to to act upon this data. So that's when we started doing you know our conferences and our programs, you know, our, our study, you know, our, our research programs, we have five research programs here, five or six, I think, you know, one on women artists, one on, on Jewish history, one on music, one on the history of news, you know, so there were specific programs with, with their own directors, I established that, that can actually tackle, you know, that aspect of the archive. And once that was done, the, 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 the rest of the, the exhibitions, the conferences, the books came naturally. You know, so it was, it was something very, you know, it came, I didn't, I never really planned, you know, okay, I'm going to do this, this, and this. I did the first thing, a digital platform, data online, documents online, digitized, transcribed, searchable, you know, you can do cross-references, anything you want, right? You know, and then, you know, and then, you know, scholarship will come, because I think that if you allow, you know, if you allow people to have access to data, Right, then they it's up to them what they're going to do with it. You know, so I'm not, you know, I, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to, you know, direct how, how how research should be done. You you provide, you know, you know, um, primary sources, and you know, and they will have access to information that no one else has. 
you know, or information that only a handful of people has. And that will create good scholarship, you know, and good, you know, I mean, hopefully, you know, it's up to them, you know, they can do bad one as well. It doesn't mean that, you know, because it's, it's, it's old and it's good, you know. Um, so that was, that was a step. So that was the first step, you know, put everything online. And, and one of the things about this digital platform was that, you know, we had to get, you know, photographers and who would scan or take pictures of documents and then upload them, you know. And this process of, you know, of, you know, going and taking pictures, you know, of documents, you know, was, was, wasn't costly, but was very time consuming. So, you know, after producing this first platform, you know, I thought to myself, you know, this is going to take forever, you know, to take pictures, you know, you know, and, you know, and I thought to myself, we got to find a solution to that. And that's how that second digital platform came about. Because around 2015, you know, something happened in, the, in, in Italy was that scholars could take pictures of documents with their cell phones or with their cameras for free before you had to pay for them. You know, you had to right. go through a, fo a photographic service, you know, company that would do them for you. Then from 2015, you can take them for free. So people were going, and even today, go to archives just to take pictures, you know, because they take thousands of pictures and then they go back home, you know, and read them and go through them and, and analyze them. So I thought to myself, wait a second, you know, there's so many people taking pictures and there's so many people taking photographs of documents from the Medici archive. I have to find a way, you know, rather than going through our own photographers, you know, we have to find a way to create a platform where people can upload them and share them pretty much like Wikipedia. So that, I went back to Mellon. I said, Mellon, okay, this, for this platform, the first one that we had work, works well and it's great and it's wonderful, but it's going to take a lot of time. You know, now that people can take photographs, you know, you know, let's find a solution where they can upload them themselves and they can, you know, contextualize them and transcribe them themselves, you know, and create their own archives. So in a sense, the second platform called Mia, mine, you know, which comes from the idea of doing it yourself, made sense because, because then, because, because basically what happened was we created the possibility to, to, for scholars to become, you know, the ultimate Medici archivist digitally, but they are still, you know, the Medici archivists. I mean, they come from a long line of archivists. They began in the, you know, in the, in the, in the mid 15th century. And this is a new version of that, that is, you know, because it can be done online and it can be done digitally, you know, there's no destruction, there's no removal, there's no, you know, so, you know, they can, they can basically archive the Medici material themselves. Also, you know, because I was sort of ambitious at the time, you know, we were just dealing with letters, right? You know, and that's just one collection of Medici stuff, but there are also other collections of Medici uh, archives or Medici, or Medici documents. There's a collection of their objects, there's a, which is called the Guardaroba Medici, which, which are all the inventories of their objects. Uh, every work of art, every, every stool, every chair, every tapestry, every painting, by Michelangelo, anything, you know? So they have lists and inventories and inventories of that stuff. And also there's another archive which deals with the, uh, the, the documents dealing with the real estate. So basically all the administration and the construction of their villas or their palaces, so on and so forth. So I united these, these collections into one and the latest platform, which is called Mia, allows you to, to, to incorporate these materials and combine them together. So a scholar, you know, reads a letter, you know, that mentions a painting and can find that painting in an inventory and then can find the painting in location in that painting in the real estate blueprints, you know? So that was something that sort of, but that came naturally. See, I, wow. I never, I never, really, I never sat down and said, okay, we got to do this and we got to do this, you know, it all, it, it always came very naturally, like research. So I allowed research to forge the way we 
allow scholars or permit scholars to have access to this material. And this is this is what we have right now, Mia. We have both platforms. Yeah. The second one is is is, is really a laboratory for work, people working on not just the ministry but the entire world, as I said, because so much information comes from the rest of the world. It's very exciting to hear about this transformation that happened, um, as you say, organically, coming to an obstacle and and trying to overcome it. Um, and for yourself, I'm very curious, how do you bridge the gap between your academic interest, your work as an administrative director of the archive? Do they go hand in hand? It be, I believe they might, because it's a strength of yours that you have the scholarly background to be able to understand it. But do you have to make compromises, personal compromises, in order to, to be a director? Yes, I have to. Um, and one compromise is that I have to wake up very early in the morning. So I wake <laughs> up at 4.30 or 5 o'clock, where I usually take care of the, you know, the, the most immediate business, because, I'm, because our institution is, is American. So a lot of the my you know the the dealings so to speak a lot of the a lot of the communication is you know is not just Italian but also you know you know transatlantic. So you know I you know wake up in the morning read my email you know read the emails you know, address the urgent emails you know which I usually I'm not even gonna give you the number because it's you know it's outrageous um, and then I and then I then I spend two or three hours in the morning working on my own on my own research you know so before I come to the office I I work at home um, and. This is usually, you know, has to do my research is usually driven by certain projects that we're doing collectively, um, like an exhibition, for instance. We did two exhibitions um, at Uffizi, one at Uffizi, one at Palazzo Fitti. One was on the on the on the German guard of the Medici, um, so it was really an armored exhibition, and and the other one was on on a woman artist called Giovanna Garzoni, who was a 17th century painter. You know, I, I wasn't the curator, there were other curators, but I, you know, I, I worked with them, you know, in, especially in the first case, to, you know, to come up with, you know, solutions, ideas, and, you know, the selection of objects, all that kind of stuff. But I mean, it's mostly their, their stuff, their fault. Um, um, but then we have so many different kinds of projects, you know, scholarly projects, you know, um, we have one on, which is going on right now, on the history of news, because in the Medici archive, there are about 200,000 Avizi. Avizi are basically the early, early modern newsletters. So the, the, the sort of the, the grandfather of the newspaper, so to speak, you know, and we have so many different kinds of, of newsletters coming from all over the world. And we're doing a project which is funded by the NEH, you know, which is, you know, to put this material online. So I try to, as much as possible, to, you know, to, you know, to, yes, to have these two things coincide, but, you know, bear in mind that sometimes, for instance, when I'm writing grants, I'm completely taken by that, you know, that I, you know, put everything aside. So I'm really sort of, you know, writing a grant, sometimes can be like writing an article or a book, you're, you try as much as possible to, to, to incarnate yourself with the subject that you're trying to, to sell in a sense, because after all, you're trying to sell something, you know, I mean, I, I hate being so, so, um, so uh, cynical, but I mean, that's what it is. I mean, you're trying to propose something that's going to be accepted and it's going to be, and it's going to be seen, you know, um, and, um, and uh, um, later on, and it's, and it's going to be produced into something later on. So um, I, yeah, I do, I, but I, what I, I obviously, I, you know, I, I, 
try my best to to keep that going you know so you know i work for instance on something which has nothing to do with uh, with the med issue or the renaissance or the young modern period i you know I, i've written a couple of sort of you know small books on contemporary architecture you know which is something i always liked um i completed you know a brill companion on 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 cosmo the first i published a lot on you know the history of pilgrimage and again the history of news i in a sense, look back to the, uh, the research that I've done as a, because the, the, the dissertation, my dissertation, I never published it, but I published a lot of articles from it, is in a sense an archive. You know, I can go back there and take things and rework them, you know, after 20 years and, and you know, and publish them and, or update them, you know, or, you know, or, um, or, or, or better them or, or improve them, you know. So I try my best to sort of to work, you know, looking back at, at at, at old stuff and looking back and looking at new stuff and try to see you know how I can best you know you know come up with again articles books and papers and talks so I you know I have to be in a sense you know on top of things I just cannot be an administrator you know I mean you know I have to you know I have to you know also you know my, my board requires that I be a scholar as well you know um, so I do I try to be as 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 despotic as possible with my with my research time, the only thing that I cannot do anymore, unfortunately, is spend you know days and days in the archive that I cannot do anymore. You know, I mean, I wish I could right. do that. You know, but you know, I mean, to have a staff of so many different kinds of scholars of different disciplines, you know, I mean, I obviously don't take their material. It's the last thing I do. But I I am you know I am by being with them, you know, they're basically in the other room right now. I am able to you know to learn what they're doing, to, you know, to see different kinds of perspectives or trajectories or methodologies, you know. Um, and these are, are scholars from all different kinds of academic walks of life, you know, from, you know, from doctoral students to, to postdocs to, to professors to, you know, senior scholars. I mean, and, and to be in that environment, you know, allows me at least to, you know, to know what's going on, to see what, you know, with the, with, with, where the different, different um, routes of scholarship are going and, you know, and, and vicariously, you know, sort of, you know, you know, work with them and understand what they're doing. And, and you know, maybe, of course, the data is there, but new ideas are always cross pollinating all the time. And it's great to have that and also to have not just scholars, but also people, techies, you know, people working, you know, in, in the in IT people, you know, because they can also add a different kind of dynamic or perspective to how research can be thought, because they too are updated by the newest Sort of digital humanities project, or by the newest sort of technology, the newest technology that comes up. So it's interesting to have these two things combined: scholars, you know, IT people, and at the same time, you know, trying to see how this synthesis, you know, can can you know can can spawn off in new projects, you know, and new grants and new ideas, you know. And you know, I'm lucky, you know, I always repeat this because I'm surrounded by people that are much smarter than I am. You know, so that's the great thing, you know, they're much, right. you know, so it's great to have people that are, you know, a lot better than you are, because you can learn so much from them, you know, and, you know, and see how, you know, see how, you know, new things can be can be brought to the fore. I yeah. love it. It's it's very stimulating to must to be in this environment where different worlds come together uh, to produce something so, so exciting. And um well, you've mentioned so many fascinating things. I really struggle to choose my final question, uh, but I want to ask you what is next for the archive? What, and perhaps should, I should say, what is the obstacle that you're facing right now, which will derive its solution? What's next for you? Hmm. That's interesting because it, it's hard 
to find solutions, but it's also hard to find obstacles. It's I mean, the obstacles are not so, they don't come up as clearly, you know, as, as you, you want them to come up. So, um, so um, I, I, I came to sort of a, the con one conclusion that, you know, that, that um, we, we, that, that um, scholarship, you know, has to have different kinds of outcomes, different kinds of, and I hate being so materialistic productions. Yes, you have to have a product. You know, um, obviously we are used to the most traditional product, the article, the book, or the talk, the the conference, that kind of stuff, which we continue to do. We like doing that. And we love doing that. But there is different. We have to approach them in different kinds of ways. So, of course, the digital humanities aspect is is the one which is, which we've been doing for so many years. We've been doing this since you know in the early the late nineties. So you know we, we and, and even before there was the term, the term existed. You know we were doing that in a sense. Um, but um, I, one has to has to approach, and I'm speaking as a director now, not as a scholar. One has to approach, you know, problems um, when you, for instance, the latest problem that came up to me was, you know, a a, a, um, a music historian, a musicologist came up to me. Actually, he wasn't a musicologist. He, he was a singer, at a, a, a chorister in the in the Sistine Chapel choir. He came up to me and says, you know, why is there so much music? You know, you know, in 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 the 16th century, you know, in Rome, and why is there so much in Venice, and why there isn't as much, or it's not known in Florence, you know. Um, so, you know, the great traditions of Rome, Palestrina, for instance, and Venice um, are well known, you know, but there's nothing, you know, really, you know, in Florence, or it's not as famous in Florence, it's not as as valorized in Florence. So I said, okay, well, let's let's hit the archives and see what we, and the libraries and see what we can find, you know. So we did find lots of unpublished music in the Florence, you know, you know, the diminishing, the diminishing patronized. Um, and, you know, and, you know, the, the natural goal as a scholar was to come up with a book and, you know, but th then we took it an extra step that is, it's like, why don't we, you know, why don't we, why don't we sort of uh, uh, found a choir, you know, let's have a choir that could actually sing, you know, and perform this music that it was that it was never heard before, you know, and that's what we did. So that was again, you know, see the problem and the solution, you know, and that came up. So we've been, we have a choir which is actually based in London, um, you know, and we've been singing in in London a lot and in New York, you know, and you know, then COVID came and everything sort of slowed down, um, and then you know this this caught the eye of CBS and CBS, um, you know, um, the sixty minute you know Sunday news program, you know, did did a, did a piece on us, you know. And you know that, but again, that was so. As you said, the, the, you said that correctly. It was organic. It wasn't. It wasn't planned before. So we thought, you know, music is not known. Let's find it, and then what are we going to do with this music? You know, let's perform it. You know, so we have now, you know, something which is, in a sense, not very scholarly in many ways. I mean, these are these are people who are professional singers who sing, right? Especially 16th century music. So we try to be, you know, you know, as philologically correct. For instance, you know, the, the choir is, you know, should be like the choir that existed in the 16th century. So all men. It's very hard to find, you know, sort of parts for, you know, for people singing high pitch, you know, so the altos and all that stuff, you know, and you know, it's, it was very hard. And um, and we did this, but again, you know, it was it was from the word that written on paper all the way to the sound, you know. So that was one issue. Another issue was, you know, another problem, quote unquote, is that in 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 um, for every you know fifteen twenty documents that we find in the Medici archive, one deals with Jewish history. There's so many, you know. So you know, what are we you know what are we going to do? This so we did we we began to 
think about this stuff. So we created a program on Jewish history, right? And you know, and we all knew that you know, Florence had a ghetto. And the ghetto was in the middle of Florence, and it was destroyed after was after the Jews left it in the 19th century to create, you know, the Florence, which was at the time the capital of Italy for a couple of years. You know, so where are this? Where is this material? Where is this? You know, this data? You know, um, so we looked and looked and looked and found it because it, it, the ghetto belonged to the Medici, so it was in the Medici real estate papers, just where the villas and the palaces used to be, right? And I thought we're okay. So what are we going to do with this stuff? Well, the first step was to reconstruct it, to reconstruct the ghetto. If you give me a second, I'll show you. Just don't go. Right. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Don't go anywhere. I'm, I'm, I'm taking so. What we did was we found all the blueprints, right? And every single plan and every single sort of, you know, and we rebuilt it. So oh, wow. <laughs> this is the, the ghetto that used to be just, just, Incredible. Next, to the, just next to the- um, And this was the, done uh, through reading letters and looking at the archives. Yes. You were able to create this. So we, we in, the, in the Medici real estate papers, we were able to find we couldn't find the master plan. What we did find, however, was every single apartment. So we, what wow. we had to do was basically take like a puzzle, put all the apartments together. What right? an achievement, yes. You know, and, and, and so this was the first step. And then we put out everything in AutoCAD and combined it and came up with this, right? Um, then of course the letters tell you the life that lived in the ghetto, what people did, you know? And, and so the interesting thing was, you know, that we, we, we constructed the ghetto um, and now we're doing an exhibition at Uffizi you know, in, which opens in 2023, you know, on, you know, on Jews in Florence, precisely the ghetto. But also by doing this, you know, by doing this research, by looking at papers and archives, we also discover things that we never, that people didn't think existed, like a 17th century Jewish Caravaggio sort of, you know, follower, you know, so who painted like, you know, you know still lives like Caravaggio, you know, so, or we discovered, a lot, we, we destroyed a lot of commonplaces, you know, that we thought, you know, so for instance, you know, you know, the, the Jews and, you know, at the time were only, you know, do, were only in the midst of money lending, you know, we found scientists and scholars, we, it was a very vast world, you know, and this came, you know, from, you know, literally from the written word all the way to the final product, which will be an exhibition. And, and of course, a catalog. And also, we also published a lot of books and we gave a lot of talks. So that is another example from you know how you begin from scholarship and end up in a product which is available, accessible, you know, understandable to a wider audience. And that audience will eventually go back to the research. They want to look back at the documents. You know. Yeah. So it's something that you know worked very well for us. Um, and and I think people you know who are not scholars appreciate. You know the fact that things had a beginning, had a, a primary source that started, that that jump started everything. You know, and this is exactly where we're we're in the business of that, of making you know archival studies documents have to be incarnated, to be embodied into something which is which which will improve our understanding of the early modern period and of ourselves today too. I mean, you know, for instance, we have a a, a, a very recently we have a program on, on the history of medicine. You know, and and the scholar who is directing that. His name is John Henderson, and he's an expert on plague, you know. So he'd been working on plague for many, many years. And, you know, lo and behold, you know, he, he, in the past two years, he's been interviewed by everyone, you know, simply because plague is, a, right now, especially was, hopefully, you know, a very hot topic. Understanding what people did at the time, you know, and relate to what people are doing now, and, you know, and the conferences, the books that allow us to understand, to live through them, what we are going through right now was something which was, again, it contemporized early modern period. So 
we like to think that what we do is to make that information, you know, you know, pertinent today, you know, so yeah. all these things have to have an application to this world. Otherwise, it's just, you know, it's just archives with no, with no life. Exactly. That's what I take away from everything you've just said is that you take this historical world and through these manuscripts, archives, you you bring this rich history to life in front of us. And I, I actually saw, saw a piece here. So I, I must ask you for a picture of that so our listeners can see as well what I just saw. It's it's wonderful. Um, I, I'm truly sorry that this is all we have time for today, but we must talk again. There's so Absolutely. much here. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. And one one of the many things you said uh, today stuck stuck with me, and it's that research should change your career and it should shape the way we go. And this is what you've shown us today, what it means to be a scholar today and how organically we can grow something so so useful, valuable and simply interesting. So thank you so much for your time and I hope we speak again. Thank you, Monica. Thank, thank, you. You. thank you. Ciao, ciao.